Welcome to the ASW Vault. In January 2022, Christian Rue talked about how today's AppSec needs to move beyond its past and into a future of sandbox apps and decorated data. And he's someone who knows about AppSec's past. Also known as Dildog, he was a member of the 90s hacking group, Loft, and co-founded Veracode. This was also another episode where we talked about security as a software quality problem. In other words, just another type of bug. But we also talked about what's needed to make these particular types of bugs go extinct. The security industry could always improve the quality of its scanners, but real impact is going to come from devs creating more secure designs. Enjoy ASW 179 and stick around. New episodes are in the queue. This is a Security Weekly production for security professionals by security professionals. Please visit securityweekly.com forward slash subscribe to subscribe to all the shows on our network. It's the show to learn the latest tools and techniques to understand DevOps, applications, and the cloud. Your trusted source for the latest AppSec news. It's time for Application Security Weekly. Christian Ryu, perhaps better known as Dildog, is one of the influential hackers from the formative era of 90s hackerspaces and the nascent infosec industry. He was a member of Loft, Cult of the Dead Cow, and co-founder of Veracode. Hello, Christian. Thank you for joining us. Hey, Mike. How are things? Uh, they're going quite well. So we are in the year of 2022. Um, we're going to move beyond Log4j, perhaps. But um, <laughs> we, hope, we have yeah. a few. <laughs> <beyond. laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> we'll see. We'll, 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 AppSec needs to do something different. AppSec needs to do something uh, better, perhaps. I think you have a pretty informed and uh, quite unique perspective on both the history of AppSec about, as well as what AppSec looks like today. So, you know, the idea of just broadening what we call AppSec should go beyond that cliche, I think. Hope, unfortunately, cliche might be at this point of shifting left. You know, what are yeah. some things that come to your mind when we talk about that? Well, this whole shift left thing, we have a lot of language that we use in security and um, application security specifically. Um, when we're talking about shifting left, we're really about making uh, security and application security processes more attractive and um, uh, palatable to developers. Um, and these days, you know, developer responsibilities are getting even more um, uh, blurry. You know, we, we have a trend toward cloud computing uh, to tend to cloud applications. Uh, and also the developer role is often you know, moving toward uh, having more responsibilities in production and uh, real-time application security. So you've got the whole SRE role and, uh, you know, being responsible for uptime as something that, you know, a lot of developers have to deal with these days. So, you know, over the last 20 years, AppSec has developed, uh, you know, a sort of tooling-oriented mindset and, you know, a lot of the tools um, have been justified by suggesting that um, the further left in the SDLC and the secure development lifecycle that you implement security, the cheaper it will be. And I've heard that sales line. I've even used it uh, to sell <laughs> tooling sure, as yeah. a service. Um, and, you know, this kind of overlooks the, the fact that a lot of issues are going to escape that tooling. Um, the fact is, is that none of the tools, none of them 
cover everything. And, uh, and that really, you know, things are going to go wrong in production that you couldn't have, you know, um, you know, predicted, you know, a, a shift had left that far. Um, so, the, you know, the reality is that no matter how hard you try, things are going to get into production that you didn't intend. And there's also going to be third party stuff that you're not looking at. And there's all of the uh, configuration oriented stuff uh, that developers don't really see because it's, uh, you know, it's planned for, but configurations can change in production. Uh, and again, developers are kind of becoming more responsible for production code. And as a result, this sort of static analysis oriented uh, testing and point in time testing shifted for uh, all the way left is missing the mark a little bit. It's still an important um, an important thing to consider. Uh, and, and, and you want a defense in depth strategy when it comes to flaws. Uh, so I'm not saying don't scan. I'm just saying we need something that's a little deeper in the, in the, in the actual production space. Um, so the, the operating system that these things that these programs run on these days is the cloud. And the cloud is really an operating system. And unlike other operating systems, I don't really think the cloud is sort of designed on purpose for security. You know, when you look at mobile <laughs> applications, there's a notion of a, of a capability manifest, you know, it says what permissions you have to click, say what you expect. Yeah, there's a notion of what expected behavior is when the, when the applications are pushed into uh, a mobile operating system. The permissions around cloud applications are, are far more uh, loose. Um, <laughs> and there's no great way to define what expected behavior is for a cloud application. I'm, I'm thinking that much like um, you know, how the mobile industry got better when the ecosystem got tighter um, in terms of security, that we're going to need that kind of a, a shift for cloud applications as well. Uh, you know, finding better ways to define what the proper behavior is for cloud applications. So, yeah, that's, it's, it's it, funny. It, I, you you have two parts there, right? You've got the if you look at something like Amazon's uh, IAM, there's all sorts of mm -hmm. uh, you can go quite granular on what you're doing on how you or your users are using the cloud. But then, sure. if you look at the application itself that you're developing, I mean, I, I just went through is trying to figure out what we're going to do for our back. Um, there's 10 million different solutions, and then okay, right. where do you put that choke? How do you choke? How do you not mm -hmm. make something that's too confusing for your users? Um, it's left for every single, maybe not developer, but um, developer team to try and figure out. And that's just we're talking about authorization, not alone the right. the rest of the the pieces around that. Yeah, I, I am roles are kind of akin to like file system permissions or yeah. you know um, discretionary access control that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So it it's not what is my application expected to do? What is what does normal look like? You know, it doesn't it doesn't really peer into that. It's just sort of like uh, you know putting some basic guardrails on how the OS is used around the app. So it was really about governing the use of some of those APIs. Um, but that doesn't mean you couldn't legitimately use an API badly. Um, it doesn't mean that you know um, you know you couldn't. You know, use the code as uh, as it was written to do something bad. Um, you know, a, a canonical example is uh, you know a backend service that typically makes database calls and usually returns a hundred rows from a call, uh, some from some query, and then 
you know, at one time out of, you know, six months a year, suddenly it's returning a million rows. What does that look like? You know, why, why is it returning a million rows? Is that something a developer would be concerned about? Even if it's not somebody exfiltrating your entire customer database, it's of concern enough that it's a significant deviation. Um, that it's the kind of thing that should probably have had a hold put on it so that uh, an SRU can look at it, or at least to let people know that this thing is happening. Um, you know, but the, the logging analysis that we do these days without manually putting in tracing on this kind of stuff um, and, you know, implementing something like an open tracing for your cloud app is, you know, bare minimum 20% uh, CPU overhead and things like that, you know. So a lot of people don't choose to put that kind of tracing in production. Um, there needs to be mechanisms for monitoring the healthy behavior of an application and comparing against that baseline. I mean, we've seen that with um, desktop things like, um, you know, I, 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 I'm a big fan of Bit9, but Bit9, for example, back in the day, Carbon Black, you know, these things have policies for a local operating system. And there sort of needs to be at least some of that for the, for the cloud. Um, you know, I'm currently working at a company called Lacework, and we're building stuff like that. Um, and if you want to see more of what we're doing, you can go to lacework.com and see, uh, uh, you know, what we're trying to build in that space. Um, I'm just new there. I'm just starting to, starting to help out, but I see the problem as a legitimate one. And, uh, you know, tooling alone is not going to get you out of, you know, production oriented, um, you know, cloud problems. Yeah, you're hitting on some some key aspects there. For one, just talking about SREs, hitting the idea of availability as part of that CIA triad, as well as yeah. even just it sounds you know quality automation. How do we just yeah. do our job more easily at scale? To use potentially something that's become a bit of a cliche, but you were also yeah. talking about like mobile apps and then and yeah. you know as operating systems and mobile apps actually have a pretty decent sandboxing method mechanism within them. Even browsers yeah. have become um, the the yep. client side operating systems, if you will, they have pretty solid sandboxing, but the cloud, as you were just saying, doesn't. And those AWS IAM roles and all of the IAM roles, they're a lot more complex than the you know looking for a sticky bit or that you know Chamad seven 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 files. So okay. what are the ways beyond you know you're starting to get into I think a little bit of that observability, what's going on mm -hmm. within the cloud, but w w what are those aspects? Maybe we're not even shifting left because AppSec never even did it. But here's a practice that you know DevOps teams, developers should just be doing because it leads to better security. Yeah. Um, well, in general, sandboxing, I think, is an underutilized technology. Um, we, uh, we could really use the ability to spin up application-level sandboxes for every piece of a cloud application. Um, you know, developers aren't going to want to, like, put this in their app, like, by themselves. Uh, you know, frankly, you can't ask developers to do anything differently. Um, whatever solution comes along for sandbox cloud applications, uh, basically has to be zero touch. Um, developers don't want to add anything to the CI pipeline, though they might be willing to like one time just to get something set up so that it, mm -hmm. you know, fire and forget it. Um, but if it requires constant, you know, wrangling, um, you know, lots of false positives, interruptions, it's going to get rejected. And, you know, people, you know, will just assume and accept the risk rather than wasting their own personal time. Um, so, you know, the question is, where do you put this stuff? Uh, do you, do you put it in uh, what, what layer? If you're not going to wrap the app itself, 
you know, do you put it in Kubernetes? I mean, you're already asking Kubernetes to do a lot. It's already doing a lot. A lot of people don't even know what it's doing. You know, it, you have That's systems easy. that are responsible for orchestrating applications, but they don't, they, when they do that, they, they, you're lowering the visibility. You know, Kubernetes makes it harder to know what exactly is going on at any one time. Um, but it would, it's, not, it's not Kubernetes specific. It's any kind of orchestration system, any kind of like automatic scaling, load balancing, proxying, all of that stuff makes it harder to determine what the state was of a cloud app at any one time. So if something did go wrong, and let's say you did get a notice, by the time you go and look at the, the app again and check the logs again, the, the, the instances might be gone or you know things have shifted around on you. Um, so really, unless you have the ability to record the state of, of a cloud app and keep a, a history of what it looked like at, at, at a particular time, you're not going to be able to correlate the, the findings that you've got, the, the logs, the reports with, mm -hmm. you know, what the, what the app looked like at the time that things were, um, you know, uh, going, going south. So, you know, you really do need uh, some kind of cloud in-flight recording going on. Uh, and I think that should be kind of a bare minimum thing that everybody that does a, a big cloud production system, you know, is looking at. You know, they need to be recording the state of the app, the network connections, the um, you know what talks to what, what APIs get used, what um, uh, errors are coming out of that. Because once you've done all that data collection, you can look at it, mine it for anomalies, uh, and even if you didn't catch some application level thing it's going to have effects down the stack to the network, you know, so nobody's going to just, you know, hack one instance of your app without doing some other exfiltration or making extra network connections or writing to the file system in a, in a weird way to, uh, uh, to get persistence on it. Um, so you know, you're basically looking for indicators of compromise in real time by, you know, recording the state of the app and then comparing it against that baseline. So, I mean, it, that, that kind of thing needs to exist. Um, you know, as far as sandboxing goes, once you've got that baseline, the sandbox is kind of automatic. It's anything that doesn't fit uh, and without you know, having some exception given to uh, processes that, that behave differently. And you could be looking at changing the, the sandbox uh, when you push new code to, to production. Because uh, you know, if you're going to be adding a new feature or something, maybe it will be different network connections. But during that sort of continuous deployment cycle, uh, there's going to be windows where you expect things to be different, and then there's going to be this sort of steady state where, you, really, if anything goes other than what you expect, somebody's doing something funny and it needs to be looked at. Yeah, so this type of thing. Mm -hmm. Briefly, this type of thing. My last company, we um, we were working on this, and we started getting a lot of questions from customers. So I'm I'm, I'm curious yeah. your thoughts here. Um, yeah. And and one of them is around <sighs> only certain applications this will work for. At least in my case, right? So um, yeah. we were getting uh, um, low level um, syscalls out of a container, and then doing modeling around that mm -hmm. while being able to fingerprint the application. Yeah. Um, so if you've got an application which is you've, you've forklifted something in and it's doing 10 million different things depending on the time of day or month or year, yeah. suddenly your baseline becomes very difficult there. So I'm sort of curious to hear your thoughts around that. Um, and then the same type of thing, at least from my experience, 
it depends on do you do that baselining in prod or in QA? And then if you go do it in QA, it comes down to how good your tests are. So um, I'd, I'd love to hear some of your thoughts around a, a little more um, the details around that type of thing, if you have any. Right. Well, you can do it in both. Um, if you're looking at QA, you really can't compare it to production. Mm. Uh, but you can try doing things in QA, like adding automated fuzzing and you know recording baselines and comparing against you know one version of you know things versus if, if this is really extension of testing i mean mm. security in its in and of itself sort of is a an extension of just software quality in general so the the mm -hmm. quality profiling and quality testing and automated testing people do um you know any any good security tool just sort of fits in into that mindset uh in terms of monitoring you're really looking at like a you know, using a, a RASP style monitoring in QA at that point. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. what, what we're really talking about here is sort of a RASP type setup for, for yep. the cloud. Um, but it needs to be something that doesn't involve like spinning up extra instances and, you know, you know, getting mm -hmm. in the way Sidecar. of the architecture of the application. Mm -hmm. You know, once you start changing the app for security, people are going to reject it. You know, so the question is, how do you get in there? Um, and monitor applications in such a way that it, it doesn't change the function of the app. You know, you have that quantum problem. Yeah, I think one of the things that you spoke on, you, you mentioned earlier too, is mm -hmm. I think, you know, bugs that are going to escape to production or bugs are going to happen. And really a lot of this conversation you've been focusing on, you know, software security as a quality problem, mm -hmm. talking about the SREs, talking about basic visibility mm -hmm. and not really talking about particular vulns. And I, and I suspect that's actually pretty purposeful because um, maybe, you know, one of the things of broadening AppSec or one of the ways that AppSec, you know, was shifting left is saying, in, a, in an incorrect manner, maybe was just go fix these bugs earlier, go find these bugs earlier. What's, you know, you're, you're de-emphasizing the bugs there. What, what's kind of on your mind as you're thinking about that is teams should be doing yeah. better with building the observability or, you know, and other types of things. Yeah, I think, I think that the lack of reasonable observability tools that occur, you know, you know, we're looking at things that will tell you if you got hacked, you know, few days after you actually got hacked. I mean, the, 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 the world of observability needs to improve. Um, with regard to individual flaws, um, things like the static analyzers and dynamic analyzers, those are niche things that find zero-day type, um, you know, million-dollar bucks, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, you can afford to spend a lot of time looking for those. The ones that like the log4j stuff, that's been out there since 2016. <laughs> I mean, the, 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 it was reported at Black Hat yeah. how to exploit this stuff. And they even pointed to Log4j as a great example of how to do it. It's been four years. And only recently, you know, and it's, you know, we push that stuff to production despite all of the scanners that we've written, despite all of the, the AppSec and static analysis tooling and dynamic analysis tooling. Nobody, nobody just noticed, oh, by the way, there's millions of this thing everywhere. Um, you know, if that can happen, you know, it's already happened again with something else. Uh, so the question is, how would you detect that compromise sooner and prevent it from, you know, becoming a problem? I mean, it, 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 we had a chance to catch stuff mm -hmm. like log 4 j We had a chance. Static analysis, dynamic analysis, 
all of the developer tooling in the world, all the security products in the world. The only thing that made a difference was, you know, some people calling it out the right way. Uh, and even the research is old. So, you know, it's sort of a shame uh, that people have spent a lot of time writing tooling and are really only finding very easy, low-hanging fruit type vulnerabilities. You know, anything that's even more complicated than a single Java jar file in terms of like complexity. Right. Uh, you're not, we're not, we're not, we're not finding that stuff, you know? Um, no, and maybe, you know, the, the world fortunately didn't immediately come to the end at the end of 2021 because of log4j. Sure. Lots of teams were really busy that lots of people had to invest time to, to address it. But you were also, you know, the way you were talking about cloud sandboxing, that's got to be an, a, a way to say, sure, bugs like log4j are going to happen because the tools are yeah frankly, missing them, but maybe yeah. the the sky doesn't have to fall if we have things sandbox, like we're blocking egress filters, well, and maybe we're, yeah, we're you, blocking you, network traffic, but not the, DNS. The people so, yeah, that I, exactly. That. Yeah, the people that I know that were the most well-protected against Log4j specifically had manually implemented some egress controls, like they had outbound mm. proxies for their application. None of the instances in their applications were able to reach out to the internet without going through a proxy choke point. And that proxy choke point knows exactly what sites the app normally contacts. Okay, let's say it needs to do some kind of, you know, API access to something. There's a list of things that the app touches. Um, you know, all of those log4j exploits out there would have needed to have a, both a proxy key, which would have been app specific and, you know, mm -hmm. that made it difficult to write the exploit for, but also, you know, only be egressing out to places that were in the allow list. So not only would they notice the vulnerability, they would notice the weird behavior. Uh, it, it also would have just completely protected the, the application. Um, you know, it's the kind of thing that, you know, maybe, uh, you know, an extremely advanced attacker would have been able to write some kind of payload that got downloaded and then acted completely internally. Um, but they would have had to have a lot of very specific knowledge of the application to, to make that exploit work and they would like get one shot you know they would have to be like a disgruntled employee or former employee one of these things right. you know where they had special white box knowledge uh you know joe schmo in uh you know ransomware farm out there is not going to be the one that uh you know even if they did pop some instance they just down it and turn it back on again and you know the people are used to the cloud just crapping out you know, 80% of your stuff dying and here and there, you know, um, USCS1 going down, whatever, you know, apps is still there, they keep running. So, I mean, it, 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 we've gotten to the point where you monitor things and if they stop working, you reboot them, you know, and it's like <laughs> exactly. it, it, attacking them, these things has become very difficult if those simple things are in place. Um, so, you know, it, between the things like egress filtering, proxying, um, and, uh, you know, a better sandboxing model eventually, uh, it's going to be very hard to exploit things that do make it into production. And I think raising the bar on the attacker is probably the you know, long overdue for cloud apps.
So that's interesting. In the spirit of raising the bar, now, Log4j is a good example of, of, a, of a pretty bad issue that wasn't, for once, a memory safety issue. Still hit right. Java. Um, and you, so you still have a lot of teams that are moving towards you know popular modern languages like Golang or Rust. Um, again, those are attacking you know, or targeting you know, memory safety, having issues, getting rid of attack classes. Do you see lots of successful adoption like that? Or do you see, you know, what would you call attention to in terms of here's some attack classes that we could just do better on? Or maybe even it's just a matter of default configurations need to be more secure. Yeah, you'll notice that most of the actual improvements in, in application security have come from the languages. Um, you know, C obviously made it really easy to do the wrong thing. C++ didn't do much better. <laughs> Java uh, still has issues. Um, the languages like Go and, and Rust are eliminating, eliminating classes of flaws, or at least making it harder. Rust is closer to the metal than Go, mm -hmm. but there's a lot of, well, there's still a lot of Rust crates that link in C um, because it's a, often seen as a replacement for C++ in the same way that Go is seen as a replacement for Java. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid that some of the, the guarantees of Rust are being uh, poisoned a little bit by their inclusion of, of unsafe code in a lot of places. People are being a little less careful with it than I think they should. That's besides the point. I think, I think it's a great um, advancement because it gives people the tools and it makes the tools the default. It doesn't make screw yourself the default, which has been the case with a lot of previous languages where you have to specifically think about security all the time. If you want to make Rust insecure, you really have to go out of your way to do it. Um, the third-party code problem definitely makes it easier to screw yourself accidentally. Um, and it should be, you know, it, that's the kind of thing that we can be doing a better job just reporting in third-party code. We could be saying, you know, I'd like when I go to crates.io, I'd like to be able to look at a Rust crate and determine whether or not it or any of its dependent crates uses unsafe code. Yep. And there are cargo checks that you can do um, for that. And there's cargo plugins that you can use to check for that stuff. But I'd like to be able to, like, when I'm making it as architectural decision to include somebody else's mm -hmm. code, I'd like to know a little bit more about it. Um, the, the, the opportunity to implement some of the software bill of material stuff on these crate repositories and, and Go repositories, the bill of material stuff needs to be way better uh, for those things so we, we get a better idea of what we're actually building in. Uh, as far as Rust goes, the other things that it's protecting you from are, are um, race conditions. It does a really great job of uh, synchronization across threads and managing resources uh, that might otherwise result in race conditions. Um, but really, no languages today package handling requirements for data along with the data itself very easily. Data is really naked when you pull in a GenD URL out of some log4j thing. Um, there's nothing saying that the insecure user input can't commingle with stuff that needs to be secure. Uh, a lot of the static analysis that we do is code that does taint tracking and tries to make a judgment call about whether or not data has been handled correctly. Uh, and that's the kind of thing that should make it into some language. I'd say Rust is a candidate because of its strong typing system. Um, the ability to say this data 
that comes in from this API call should be handled in a certain way before going out this output. Uh, that kind of programming tool, like being able to taint arbitrary, mm -hmm. you know, variables and classes and determine like be able to say this thing's a credit card number there's no way it should be written to disk without it being encrypted or something like that or a password needs to be hashed before being written to disk you know language level support for that kind of thing where it's the default where you can specify things like personally identifiable information or things that need a certain kind of handling uh, languages really need to support that as a first class thing uh, because that's what these security scanners are doing they're exercising the properties of data handling and you know if we want to obviate the need for a varicode or a or a you know dynamic scanner um the, the language needs to support doing it the right way and making it harder to screw up data handling yeah so i you, think if the, oh go ahead john you and sorry quickly you answered um this question the last few words but i'm going to ask anyways because i want to see if we can dig a little deeper as you were talking through there, you know, um, um, yes, we need languages to have better support for some of these concepts, um, the data concepts. I was going to ask, could you see like in either Go or Rust having a structure, basically having third-party um, uh, data types? So have like, you know, here's a credit card uh, um, a struct that when you bring data into mm -hmm. it, you have like your, your getters and, and setters on it. It does all those checks automatically. Do you think something like that could have a chance of I'll say helping people, or do you actually think it really needs to be built into the language itself as that first-class citizen? It's I I think uh, the language needs a few enhancements that I think are actually being worked on already. I'm no I'm not a complete Rust expert, um, and I'm not you know I'm definitely not um, you know, steering committee level, but I'm, I've been keeping up with the changes in the language. And one of the things that needs to be implemented for a, a library like this to exist as a third-party thing is uh, the notion of negative traits um, being able to say um, that uh, that a trait is unimplemented for a particular structure um, or a particular uh, type so basically you'd be able to create third-party negative taints on uh, negative traits on other people's types once you can do that then you can import something that adds negative traits to uh other aspects of the operate of, of the of the standard library around rust program um mm -hmm. that would be allow you to say at compile time if you're treating some data the wrong way that it won't compile at, at runtime you can simulate it with taint taint tracking at runtime is sort of like positive negative trait propagation at compile time uh, it's a little complicated but basically you want to catch things at compile time if you can and the whole rust ecosystem has this whole trait analysis type propagation thing that it does as part of its uh, you know verification mechanism for the file checker and everything else there's this whole type validity checking that it does and you know if we could leverage that uh, once they get the negative trait stuff built uh, one could build a crate that said basically you know nothing can go out you know this whole you know written to disk a certain way without having gone through certain things if it you know some data is trait got a trait that says must be secure and is written directly to disk without having passed through something that secures it then you know it would be uh you know at fault uh, uh there'd be a compiler fault you know so that, that's the kind of level that we need here and uh, you know the language support can get there 
it's just not there yet, but I, I think generally we're working on it. I, in a couple of years, I think Rust will be a great candidate for the first language that can actually do that kind of uh, verification at compile time. No, that that's very cool, and it ties into you. You the the theme that's emerging here is observability broadly in the cloud that you were talking about, but then yeah. observability into dependencies into code, as well as yeah. then as you're rightly pointing out, when when flaws happen, exploits happen. You know, nobody wants just to exploit the software. You know, to be successful, they want to exploit the data behind it, or that's where the yeah. money is. That's where the access is. Yeah. Nobody cares about getting root necessarily. They want that data, which, as you're describing, if it's well decorated in these ways. Um, tainted, uh, you can figure out when it's protected and when it's not. It allows it allows us to expressively um, control how it, how data is handled, and that uh, we lack that today. So it has to be manually implemented every single time, and people people get it wrong. So. Mm -hmm. No, indeed. Well, well, Christian, you, your your Twitter bio includes the phrase, you know, be kind, do something. Uh, you've clearly been doing many, many interesting things for quite a while. Um, and one of the, the hopefully interesting was joining us. So I just want to say thank you for uh, thank taking you. the time to chat with us now. And uh, also ask you, is there something we should be keeping an eye out for as you are as you're busy doing something in 2022? Yeah, sure. I've, I've started to uh, to do some work in the social media space. Um, I'm starting to think about decentralizing social media and what it would mean. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk about Web 3.0 and blockchain this and you know, people building new social networks and, and communication systems for anonymous chat over some kind of, uh, you know, distributed app framework. Um, I caution people to look into how those apps are being written. Um, the <laughs> idea of decentralizing social media is really important. I think uh, you know we've come to a, a position where the the algorithm uh, is making calls about uh, people's content that you know is you know really bad. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of complaints I could do about centralization, but I have just as many complaints now about how decentralization is happening. And I, you know, I'm looking to write some code, put some stuff out there that does decentralize social media um, in a different way, and uh, hopefully. Uh, without incurring some of the the profit motive that I'm seeing from a lot of the, the companies that are doing this, you know, you've got you know a, a lot of crypto people, and I'm by crypto, I mean cryptocurrency, um, that are implementing these things because uh, you know I think of freedom, something or other. You don't want to be censored. Got kicked off of Twitter for a bunch of Trump shit, you know, whatever. You know, it's it's the kind of thing that we have to implement, but we have to think about it very carefully. Because the problems that social media has today caused its centralization. You know, Web 1.0 was decentralized. You know, but then you started adding advertisements, and then you started putting profit motives and everything, and suddenly people became the product. You know, that you get a reason your Facebook is free. Um, you know, we need to get the money out of social media, and to do that, you can't base it on a cryptocurrency. It's just a different kind of profit motive, and it's going to different people. Uh, so we're going to be working on ways to, you know, toss that up a little bit, show people that your participation online doesn't necessarily require you being the product. 
Thank you for that. We'll keep an eye out for that. And uh, maybe next time, uh, speaking of people's the product, we'll talk a little bit about Soiling Green and uh, what that meant. Um, <laughs> just want to say, let's, uh, thank let's you. not get there. Let's not get there. <laughs> Uh, th thanks again, Christian, for joining us. And for everybody who um, would like to follow more about what he's been doing, um, follow him on the current social media centralized platform of Twitter at Dildog. <laughs>